from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Welcome to part two of our discussion with Bill Crystal. Conservative? Yes. But without a doubt, Bill brings to this show a kind of insight and analysis that will make you think. And oh, we've got a lightning round, so you'll want to stick around for that. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Once again, my co-host Jane Albrecht is an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials around the globe. She's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, how you doing? Fine. Always good to be here, and welcome, Bill. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Bill. As you've heard, Bill Crystal is that infamous American neoconservative political analyst that you see almost daily on CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox. He was the founder of the political magazine, The Weekly Standard, and he's now the editor-at-large of The Bulwark. And he has his own podcast, aptly named Conversations with Bill Crystal. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you both. Let's talk about where the real fault lies right now. You know, it seems that there are tens of millions of people that are increasingly far right who will forgive anything, believe anything, whether or not it makes any sense whatsoever. You know, the pandemic is a democratic hoax and will disappear by Easter. Nope. If I lose the election in six months, it was a fraud. Stop the steal. Jewish space aliens with lasers that start California fires. There are abused children in the basement of a pizza restaurant. Eliminate election fraud by reducing voting hours and forbidding anybody from giving the people online water or food. Scamming millions of their own supporters such that their online donation suddenly is a monthly donation to the point where you have to put your tail between your legs and return $120 million that you stole from your own supporters. The big lie, which millions still believe. Why are the Republican voters forgiving all of this stuff? They shouldn't. And it suggests some problems in our society, our culture, our information systems, our our media, and so forth. A lot of those things are hard to fix and hard to know, hard to even understand. But for me, the one thing we do know that could happen that hasn't happened is leaders that those voters respect and look to when they're elected officials, people they watch on television and so forth, have not stood up and said, that's not true. I understand my voters here in whatever district, congressional district, you voted for Trump. If as a Republican can say this, I voted for Trump. I wanted him to win, but he didn't. And I looked at this carefully and here's the date. I'm going to take half an hour now. You don't have to listen to all of it, but I'm going to explain to you that what you think isn't true. Very few Republicans, very few conservatives, very few people on Fox News. I would even say very few conservative elites in the sense of big donors, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, have had any kind of tough love talk to their own supporters. Even the journal, which is probably the highest tone right conservative opinion page in the country and the most influential, it's all sort of, well, that's a little off. I mean, they've gone too far in that. But, you know, there are real problems with the election stuff and we need to. And anyway, what's much more important is that Biden has done A, B or C. So even there, there's a kind of failure to police your own supporters' beliefs and rhetoric. If they don't hear that from the people they respect, they're not going to believe it much when they hear it from me or let alone a bunch of Democrats and liberals. And so they kind of are off in their own echo chamber and so forth. But Bill, you know that people are, are reading and they're watching news that basically feeds them back their own opinion. And feed them fake information. Someone had a good point about this. You can actually sometimes shatter people. People think one thing, you say, wait a second, you're a busy person. We understand you don't have time to really look at this. Here are five facts that I'm going to give you. And, but in fact, they, well, the worst things about kind of social media, internet stuff is they, they get a lot of facts. They're just 
false facts. You know what I mean? They have information. They get all this long accounts of how the fraud has happened. They get all this, you know, it's not as if there's nothing there. It's hard. So it's hard to penetrate that once it gets going. It is like a cult, right? Do you, yeah. How could people be Scientologists for all these decades, you know? But somehow once you get sucked in, it's easier to get reinforced and hard to break out. And I think we're seeing this sadly and unfortunately really, you know, on a pretty big scale here. Social media, I think, has a lot to do with it. I do think I used to be sort of a doubt. Nah, there's always been demagogues. There's always been, frankly, people with crazy opinions. God knows the 20th century had people who were whipped up to do horrible, horrible things. And so it doesn't, social media probably doesn't matter. That was kind of my old view, you know, just, just a different means for the same thing. I now think there is something almost unique about the way it creates a kind of closed echo chamber. It does give the few a very big platform. A kind of self-reinforcing one, you know what I mean? So you never see anything else and you see only more stuff that confirms it. So no, I think it's it's all very dangerous and damaging. And so you need a lot of social and cultural and other kinds of reformations. It can't just be politics. But you know what? It would help as a start if the political leaders confronted their own supporters and said, I'm sorry, I know you wish this was the case, but it isn't the case. You know, a lot of these guys, do they go home at the end of the day and kind of laugh at us and just think we're dumb as a box of rocks and we'll accept anything that we actually believe what they're saying? Or is it just like we're all playing Monopoly deal and you want to bluff the other guy, it's part of the game and this is how I get elected? It's a very good point, a question. And I think there are different types, honestly. I mean, so I think Trump is a con man. I mean, I really believe fundamentally that was true for him in business. So con men don't believe or don't necessarily believe they're con. Now, there's also a history, I think the like novelists and people who write about this, you know, study this and think about it. If you think of different literary works, the con men often fall for their own con or for maybe a slightly different con, right? I mean, you know, there's sort of a way in which they they con themselves at the same time. But no, I think and I think there's a certain amount of that. And there's a certain amount of the amount of money that can be made. This I underestimated early on. And I think a lot of people in the mainstream establishment media and political system underestimated this. I remember people going to the Trump White House early on. Friends of mine would say to me, can you believe he took that job? What a mistake. It's going to ruin him. No one will hire him again. He's going to be finished, you know, just to get a year or two in the White House and he'll be able to eat in the White House mess. And I remember saying, I don't know about that. Are you sure that he's not going to get us $2 million book contract when he gets out? And in fact, the TV networks will want to have someone on who served in the Trump White House. And in fact, maybe corporations even will want to hire those people because they need to get along with that part of the Republican Party. And I think, sadly, I was more right than wrong on that. People do not feel, very few people, fairly rather few people, feel that you know it's a, they haven't paid a price, so to speak, for being part of that giant con. So they're all chugging along with their careers. Trump is one of the biggest cash cows that has come along. Yeah. The other cash cow was uh, the casinos, but that didn't work out so well. But the cash cow that campaign fundraising is for him is amazing. And I think that's one of the reasons he keeps going. And I think a lot of the people who went in, uh, this will sound sort of snotty if I say this, these were not the best people. They wouldn't have gotten great jobs in a normal administration. They might have gotten jobs at this you know, second or third level or something. Uh, in Trump world, they if they were loyal enough, if they were willing to do whatever he wanted and not worry too much about some legalities and, and so forth, uh, they could move up very, very fast. And they did. And again, I'm curious to see, I mean, everyone now is a little bit now, of, I don't know if those people are going to do so well now that Trump's gone, but 
I don't know. I think a lot. Look at them. They're running for, you know, Sean Spicer. I haven't really followed him. He's obsessed about him. I don't really know him much. I mean, I don't know what he's doing exactly, but he doesn't strike me that he's out on the street. Panhandling, Sarah Sanders, the next press secretary, is going to probably be the next governor of Arkansas. These people aren't, you know, there's a ton of money swirling around in QAnon, wacky conspiracy world, and people are not suffering from that. And maybe if they really go off the deep end, they can get in trouble, obviously, legally and otherwise. But the, yeah, I agree. The amount of money that, that turned out to be there. Uh, uh, is a little surprising. And not just a lot of it is the people, you know, sending in 20 bucks and not realizing they're sending in 20 bucks every month and so forth getting conned. But there are a lot of surprising number of wealthy people who I don't know why exactly they they sort of get intrigued by this too. And they're, they're unhappy about the country. Their kids didn't turn out the way they wanted. Well, many of them are voting their tax rate. I agree with that, but that's where we're at. That I can understand. But there's a surprising number of people, I think, who, who are all in on the general nativism, authoritarianism. This, I don't, you know, this country, I don't recognize it anymore. I say, well, you made a lot of money here in this country that you don't recognize, and it seems to be doing okay on your, you know, in your third house there in, in Sun Valley and so forth. I don't, are you really miserable? But no, it's horrible what's happening. The, my kid is at some college and he has a socialist professor. I mean, we've all right, you know what I mean? And and the whole country's turned against me. And like, I'm a victim. I'm a zillionaire with three houses and running a whole business and et cetera, et cetera. But I don't like some things that are happening. And I don't recognize some parts of the country that look a little different. And so I'm a victim. So Trump is, was brilliant, I've got to say, in the victimology side of this, you know, that turning a bunch of pretty well-off people, mostly, <laughs> not all, but some into victims. Bill, let's look at the uh, let's look at the election coming two years from now. I'm going to ask you to pull out the Bill Crystal ball. I want credit for that, by the way. Yeah, that's good. What is the likelihood that the Republicans take control of the House and Senate in 22? I think not so likely the Senate maybe slightly above 50-50 in the House, but both are pretty close to 50-50. So, I mean, I think it's not a done deal. I think the Democrats could overperform for various reasons in the do better than you normally do in your first your first off your election when you've taken over the White House. Uh, but I also worry, and I think it's quite possible that, uh, that well, it's so close, of course, it doesn't take much of a swing, right? So Republic, you know, you get a little recession, a little mess up somewhere, a couple of bad stories about the Biden administration, and Republicans could do okay. So I, I really don't know. Well, let's put you on the spot then. What's your advice to the Democrats for what they can do to keep control or gain control in the House and Senate? I mean, it's, I think, pretty conventional on the positive side, which is the most important side, I think, here, they're governing. You got the presidency, you got the Senate and the House. It's extremely narrow. It's extremely tough. You've got to come through on some big things. And there, I think the story is good so far, because basically what did Biden have to do in his first hundred days? He had to help us get, all get vaccinated and it give us a sense that we could come out from the pandemic economically and in terms of just life getting back to normal with the schools and stuff. And he's done a good job. I mean, there are little things I would change, but and I think the economic stuff is going to work out pretty well. It'd be nice if you could fix, get some voting rights legislation through it to prevent some of what the Republicans are trying to do at the state level. And then there are a ton of other issues, immigration and, you know, climate and all, which are important. Is there one key piece of advice you would give them? And if you do this, you have a better chance of ending up in control. I think, and this is sort of a cliche, so I'm not sure this is good advice. I mean, I think you got to keep your eye on the big stuff and not sweat the small stuff, cut your losses on the small stuff and not pick stupid fights on the small stuff. If you look at Reagan, he got two or three big things done, you know, and I think was perceived to be getting them done, which is why he got reelected in such big margins, successful foreign policy and getting the economy going again. They had a ton of mistakes, gaffes. There were people in the administration who were getting fired, who were saying stupid things. 
they cut their losses very well. And that I think is very important to do in politics. You know, just like poker, right? You got you need to win a few big hands and then you need to make sure you, that you don't stay in too long on the hands that you're going to have to fold. And I think we don't need Maxine Waters saying stuff that it wasn't as bad as what Trump said and it wasn't as important and she's not the president. But anyway, who needs to have her seeming to encourage people to riot? And who needs to have just many things like that where they're, you can't control the whole party. There are many members of Congress and so forth. But the less of that and the quicker that stuff gets kind of put aside, I guess, and not, you can't attach it to the entire party, I think the better. And there's a huge conservative media apparatus now, political and media apparatus, which is designed to magnifying to an insane degree, frankly, random statements by backbench or not backbench Democratic members of Congress, university professors, you know, you name it, Hollywood types, you know, anyone who says anything, suddenly it's like, can you believe the Democrats are doing this? I mean, I've been in so many conversations like this with old friends or ex-friends, acquaintances, and it's like, that's not really a Democrat. I mean, that's just some, like, one person said something somewhere, you know, it's stupid, and they shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, but it doesn't mean that, oh, no, that's the whole Democratic Party. What moves do you think the Republicans need to make to win the midterms? How's that for unfair? That is a tough question because I'm not sure. I, I know what I'd like them to do, but I, I don't know that it would help. They may be right to just be demagogic. You know, They may just be right to just fight everything. They get no credit for helping Biden pass things. So why shouldn't they just scream and yell? There'll be something in the $1.9 trillion growth package that will be wasteful, that will be silly, that will get, you know, be a scandal somewhere, right? Somewhere in this big country. Whereas they'll just focus on that. I mean, I wish I could say that I thought we had a grown up enough media and a sensible enough politics that you can't get away with just screaming and yelling about that stuff. But I'm, I'm not so sure about that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Jane, what do you say we dive into the whole concept of the filibuster and some of the things that the Biden group is looking to pass? One of the things I've been wondering is if the Republican Party stays on this path, Bill, I don't believe over time they will stay a strong party. I think they will grow weaker. In that context, it's very unusual for a new party to pop up in the United States and not easy for it to become mainstream. But is there a possibility facing what we're facing now? that a third party really could emerge and eventually the Republican Party atrophies and dies. So yes, I think there's more of a possibility than there has been in sort of our political lifetimes of a third party emerging, uh, uh, maybe a centrist party that would be repudiate the Republicans' nativism and authoritarianism, but not, especially if the Democrats go left, try to pick up the kind of centrist strand of Clinton Democrats as well. I agree that the Republican Party ultimately is playing a, a kind of losing hand here. They're, they've got declining demographics and it's just hard to believe you could really build any kind of sustainable majority out of what they're trying to do. But how much damage, and this is again why I'm so sort of have a sense of urgency about all this, 
awful lot of damage can be done to the country if a party on its way out sort of has temporary majorities, which they then use in authoritarian ways to try to forestall what's happening historically, right? I mean, you can really have an extremely unpleasant and damaging and dangerous 10 or 20 years, even if it's not really sustainable over the long haul. Is there any serious talk among Republicans or former Republicans about trying to form a third party at this point, or it's not really materializing in any way? There's a lot of talk. I mean, I think it's slightly stymied for now. It's stymied, but just kind of on the back burner for now. For two reasons. You've got a 2022 election coming up where it's hard to see that there's much of an appetite for independent candidates or third-party candidates. It's going to be questionably who controls the House, who controls the Senate. It's going to be Democrats or Republicans. So if you don't want the Republicans to, you should vote Democratic and, and vice versa. And then Biden, who is centrist. So for people like me, frankly, you know, I don't want to weaken Biden by spending all my time saying, well, I can't tolerate Biden either. So we need to have a third party that's in between the other two. I don't think it's it's asymmetric, as the political scientists like to say now. We have one party that's really irresponsible, another party that has some irresponsible elements. It would be a mistake to weaken both parties equally. So I think it's more important for now for people like me to the degree we can make any difference to help the Biden administration succeed. If, if it fails, if things happen on the Democratic side, if they go left, if it just things fall apart for various reasons, I think that's where your third party happens, probably one cycle away from now, where you've got a left-wing Democratic party after Biden uh, maybe has, has not succeeded, uh, and a Trumpy Republican party, and a heck of a lot of people in the middle think, geez, we really could do better than this. But I don't think we're quite there. You know, historically, the president's party has lost the midterm elections. And so it's a very close majority that the Democrats have. What do you think the odds are that the Democrats will maintain control of the House and the Senate? I think the Senate, they just have a little bit better chance. The map's a little better for them. There are a couple of Republican incumbents who either aren't running again or who are vulnerable. I think states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, which currently have Republican senators, could go Democratic. That would give them room to lose a state or two. So I if I had to bet, I'd bet on the Democrats holding the Senate. I mean, who knows that what the mood will be and what the country will look like in, in, in 12, 16, 18 months. The House, the conventional wisdom would have to be that the Republicans will win it. They did pick up so many more seats than would usually be the case in 2020 that they may have taken some of that low-hanging fruit. Maybe the Democrats can fight hard and hold those swing seats that they do hold. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want you to know that the verdict is guilty on all three counts. Wow. wow. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting. Do you think that will calm things down? Do you think that we'll actually take a look at that and reform the police structure? What do you think that'll do for us? I mean, certainly, I think the the other outcome would have done the opposite of calming things down. So it's good in the sense that hopefully at least people will think, look, you know, people are trying to be do justice here and not simply willing to excuse the inexcusable, even if that behavior is committed by a policeman or by someone of your own race. I do think the police reform stuff, again, I've been, you know, I've been vaguely in favor of some of these reforms. I just hadn't really thought of it as a crucial issue until now. But I got to say, both the police issue and the gun issue over the last few days, we're speaking, you know, after what, a five, six day period when there were what, four or five different mass killings. Almost 50 in the last 30 days. You know, it's hard gun control. It's not so there are already three, four million guns out there. It's not, there's no magic way to solve it. And, and there are people who have legitimate reasons for having them and they're not going to you know, give them up anyway. And, uh, and it's not going to be the votes to get them to give them up. And I'm not sure that's the right policy to have them give them up. But could we do better? I mean, could there be some forms of checks and registration and and ways to stop people who are uh, unstable from having them? I, I've got to think so. And I, 
I wonder if Biden will turn his attention to that much more. He's been pretty focused and pretty intelligently focused, I gotta say, on the economic stuff and tried to keep everything else a little bit away. But I wonder if the combination of the police issue and the guns issue creates a moment. And maybe on that kind of issue, you could get some Republicans. I don't know. There are libertarian Republicans who've always been unhappy about some aspects. I think this is the issue that brings up the issue of the filibuster. Biden can do a certain amount as president, but the real question is, are the Democrats going to have the courage to do away with the filibuster so that they can get legislation like this passed? Well, do away with it or do away with it for this issue, just like last time where we, we did away with it for the sake of judicial appointments this issue and then the voting rights issue and then another issue. And yes, you can you can hollow it out. Right, but right. Eventually, I think the problem is they don't have the votes on the Democratic side quite yet to do it. Right. I mean, I think to get the votes, I, I've never been a favorite of the vote as a pure political science matter. It does not, it seems, increase compromise or moderation. It does the opposite, actually. It sort of increases the incentives to just hang tough on everything. So it actually is a perverse, I mean, it's not in theory, it could do the first thing. You know, there are institutions that we're all probably parts of where there might be super majorities for certain things. And maybe that's sometimes a good idea, you know, but the filibuster is not designed to be that, first of all. And it, it certainly now, in my view, works the opposite way. So I'm in favor of getting rid of it in general. I have been for years. Right now, there aren't the votes to do it. I think they would have to make a very good faith effort to pass certain things and show the voters, in a sense, show their colleagues that the filibuster is preventing us from doing A, B, or C that's so important. So take voting rights, which I have been a little bit involved in. There's the core voting rights reforms that are really important, I think, uh, both in the John Lewis Act, uh, H.R. 4, and in H.R. 1, that really would be important to secure people's right to vote, keep it at the level at least they had in 2020. There's a lot of other stuff in HR1 that's ethics and government stuff and campaign finance reform and matching funds. Some of the ideas might be good ideas, some of them probably not so good, honestly, but they're not wildly urgent. You know, they're kind of traditional, frankly, liberal ideas. I mean, they're good government ideas. Some of them maybe should be passed separately. Some of them could wait till 2023. I think the Democrats need at some point to say, okay, we have these bills that have a lot of our wish lists in them. Now we've got to really pare it down to what's urgent, what's essential, what's important for our democracy. Bring those to the floor. If they get filibustered, then go to Manchin and send them basically their own members and say, look, this we got to get done. Maybe we only have a carve out for this, you know, whether at least other carve outs is another question. But I think there needs to be a certain thing they need to go through to kind of, they can't just pass HR1, you know, on a party vote in the House, bring it up in the Senate, this 800 page bill. It, it doesn't get the votes. The Republicans don't like it. And they say, oh, too bad. We're jamming this through. Do you think that all the Democrats will vote for the infrastructure program? Or do you think that they're going to be a couple of holdouts, in which case, you know, the question doesn't even get called? Yeah, I think on, on the economic stuff, it's easier to get people like Manchin because he is kind of a big government guy in West Virginia, wants to have a lot of money spent there. And so I kind of think they could hold their party on that. Some of the other stuff's a little harder to, to get everyone on, but maybe they can get some Republicans on some of this. And I don't know, maybe Biden could have done a little more, but I have been a little amazed. I mean, the Republican, they're even the decent Republicans, you know, Rod, the seven, let's say, voted to convict Trump, Romney and others who've been, you know, pretty courageous standing up to Trump at times. Some of the ones who are retiring, like Toomey, Foreman, they don't seem to, uh, even when they're decent, they don't seem to be taking much leadership, I've got to say. So like, where is the Republican 
counteroffer on the infrastructure. I mean, I have, I'm not sure that Biden's team has correctly decided that we need to do every single thing that they think that, you know, that we need to do. Well, they, they don't have some like magic ability to devise, you know, economic plans. Maybe we need a smaller bill. Maybe we need more focus on X instead of Y. I have a friend who's a liberal who doesn't like all the electric car stuff because he says we don't really want to have more cars than ever on our highways. We should really be doing high-speed rail. I have zero opinion on this. I'm just saying that there's a, like, there are actual policy issues you could debate, right? Should we spend 50 billion on high-speed rail instead of on electric cars. You get no impression that the Democrats are at least sort of doing some of that. I wouldn't say they're having the most sophisticated debates, but I mean, Elizabeth Warren, for example, has her own views, which are somewhat different from Biden, and they get debated. Some of the younger members of the House, intelligent, I think, uh, want to be serious about policy. The Republican Party, I mean, lit- and I'm not being even facetious here. I just really, like, literally, what are the Republicans saying about this? It's kind of a big deal, spending $2 trillion. What is the Republican proposal? To spend zero, to spend 500 to spend this on that? I mean, I don't even know, you know. It's really interesting to find all these right-wing Republicans who, only when the infrastructure bill comes up, they get born-again financial religion. Yeah, right. No, that's true, too. Yeah. But what gets me is, well, how is spending money to rebuild our infrastructure not patriotic? and not about making America great again. Well, okay, but a couple of different ways to look at it, Jane, and of course, this is my job. So let me ask you, Bill, $750 a night for people at the border, $10,000 hammers after $100 million paid to accounting firms. They've once again said the Pentagon is unauditable because of the convoluted way they spend their trillion dollars. So assuming that we all decide that we want to spend and invest in our future, do you think our government is able to spend efficiently without corruption? I, I don't think there's that much corruption, really, at the federal level. I mean, when it gets passed through to states, localities, businesses, it can get somewhat corrupted. I do think the inefficiencies are obviously there, and also to counter these sort of the unintended consequences sometimes that can boomerang. I rather like, one reason I'm sort of favorable to some of fair amount of Biden's proposals is, so there are two ways to government, to, in a way, spend a lot of money. One way is to spend a lot of money and to say, you know what, if you worked at a business that went under, here's PPP money, here's, you know, here's your salary supplement on employment insurance, or if you have kids, here's some money to help with raising the kids. The other way for the government to spend money is, hey, we're going to set up childcare centers all over the country because we have ideas. We, we were experts. We've talked to the, uh, we know how best how to, how to raise your kids and we know how best to do all this. To be fair to Biden, he's not doing that much of that. It's not really command and control sort of 1950s type socialism or, or, and I'm not saying socialism in a pejorative way, I'm just saying literally kind of like 50s type European socialism or big government stuff. And most of it is throwing money at the problem, which sounds like a little pejorative, but it's actually probably a better way to deal with a lot of these problems. And so, you know, let the school systems figure out how to spend the money, but let's make sure they have enough money that they can deal with the pandemic and its after effects and so forth. And let's not mandate everything from Washington. But should they be doing everything at once, Bill? I mean, just we're going to do it all. It's a little. So that's where I think, you know, the reason there's a Republican Party, the reason in most democracies there's a conservative party is to say, hey, you know what? We can't do everything. There are limits, there are trade-offs. And here's, I think we should do a B and D and C, I think we should knock out of this bill. Well, I mean, that's a perfectly good debate. I'm making this up, obviously, because of what A, B, C, and D are. But I mean, that's a good debate to have. What's most striking about the Republican Party today is who's saying that? That's kind of what the point of the opposition party is, right? And they could win some of these arguments, because it's not as if there aren't moderate Democrats who are worried about spending too much and who are worried about some of the inefficiencies, and et cetera. But are we even going to be able to have a policy debate, given the character of the Republican Party and the domination by the 
sort of anxieties, you know, fanning anxieties and fanning the flames of, of resentment and, and, and hatred. I, that, that's a question, I think. I think it's a really big loss not to have two worthy parties that debate these ideas because that's how you come up with the best policies. It's absolutely a good point. We're going to take 30 seconds, and when we come back, we're going to have the lightning round, Bill. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media. Bill, this is a game that we play where we just mention something very briefly, and you've got about two sentences to give us the first thing that pops into your mind. You ready? I have no choice. I'm strapped to my chair here. Sounds dangerous. It is dangerous. Okay. Let's start with the Iran nuclear deal and Israel and Israel's sabotage of Iran's Natanz centrifuges. Sabotage of Natanz is good, and it gives Biden a little more time to work out a better deal. Cool. 43% of Republicans don't plan to get the vaccine. I think that will go down. I, I do think as people look around and see their neighbors getting it and, and doing things without too much trouble, and they read about Israel and other places where almost everyone's gotten it, I, I think vaccine hesitancy will, will, will recede. You and Lieutenant General H.R. McCaster, former National Security Advisor, both feel that we're making a mistake pulling out of Afghanistan. Yes. I mean, we're, we've look, it's not great. It's been a very difficult war. But the status quo is tolerable. We, it could be a lot worse if the Taliban take over. We've got 3,000 troops there. They're not, thank God, taking many casualties. It's been one in 10 months, uh, one death in 10 months there among American troops. The Afghan government wants us there. I would leave the 3,000 troops. I think that's safer, less risky than pulling out. What is the first change you would make to our gun laws in this country? You know, that is a good question. And it's, I think the gun situation is very good. I guess some forms of registration and much better background checks so people who are disturbed don't have access to all this firepower. Is the Republican Party racist? Not every Republican is racist. And the party as a whole, I don't know. But I mean, certainly there's much too much tolerance of racial bigotry uh, in the Republican Party and kind of blindness to dealing with it where it shows up. Good point. This morning, you pointed out uh, that Marco Rubio was rather vocal about how Trump would destroy the Republican Party and potentially the country. And now he's vying for Trump's support in Florida. Can you really expect anything different in this environment? You know, I guess not. But he's kind of an example of the Republican establishment. It just turned out to be so weak. It, it correctly saw what Trump was. Trump won. And instead of continuing to fight and saying, OK, well, you've won for now, but we're going to stand our ground and minimize the damage you do and come back and uh, what you've lost, build something new. They just continue to pander to him. Ted Cruz. I mean, I knew Ted Cruz eight, nine, ten years ago. I, you know, he was a very dogmatic, ideological conservative. But again, the degree to which under Trump and, and under the influence of Trump, he's become just a ridiculous demagogue is uh, distressing. I mean, a lot of the worst demagogues got good educations, right? Yep, yep. Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, she seems marginally crazy. But again, the degree to which she raised more money than any other House Republican. $3 million right after she was stripped of her positions. Mitch McConnell. I mean, Mitch McConnell is a talented politician who rationalized his way to, to accommodating things that I think history will not judge him well for, for what he's done. What happened to the Tea Party? Is the Republican Party now the Tea Party? Was that a metamorphosis of the Republican Party? 
you know, I think that's one way to, to look at it. And that's not a, a bad way to look at it. Except I'd say the Tea Party, it could be a little crazy. It was a little extreme, a little simple-minded. I don't think it was nearly as mean-spirited as the current party. One of the things that's most striking about the demagoguery is, is just how personally nasty it is. Whereas the Tea Party was kind of, you know, we need to obey the constitution, the government's out of touch, but and there was some nastiness, obviously. But anyway, I think it's worse than the Tea Party. Who is the one person you think you can sit down and get to see the light and change their opinion because they, in fact, can influence a lot of others to go in the right direction? You know, that's a good question. If I knew I'd be having that conversation with him or her right now and not be, not be on this uh, podcast, I guess. I kind of feel like we've all made all the arguments many, many times. If people aren't hearing them, it's not because they you know, haven't been persuaded. It's because they don't want to hear them. The degree of, of willful blindness, willful deafness, if I can put it that way, out of rationalization, as we discussed earlier, is really, for me, that's one of the most striking things. Bill, how can people follow you? You can uh, go to thebulwark.com, which is our website, which is never Trump kind of moderates, conservatives, and liberals. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and join us again. This was a wonderful conversation. I'd be happy to, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you to Jane. And to you listening, don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for the next Meet Me in the Middle episode. And thanks to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. The executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Everybody, stay healthy. We'll see you next week. It will be okay. From Kirko Media. Media for your mind.